Today I will be preaching for you, reading for you, and preaching for you out of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Hear now the Word of God. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, We thank you for this potent and powerful and promising summary and proclamation of the completion of your son's work and what that means in the reality of what we have, that we have the blood of Jesus Christ, that we have this great priest and king over your people. Help us this day to have an increased confidence in the blood of Jesus Christ and help us to recognize and to live as the house of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's fairly interesting that this particular passage here, Hebrews chapter 10, 19-25, is probably a passage that has been, or at least portions of it, have been pointed to a lot during the COVID, COVID pandemic that we had. Because during that time, we had a lot of churches, including our own, that had to shut down and we were separated. And we had this particular verse of not neglecting to come together, meet together, resonating in our minds, like what are we going to do about this, that we are now being required out of the government and also out of the love of our neighbor to not be together. How are we going to deal with this? And it's been echoing and resonating even since then in our minds as we see that throughout the whole country and even the world, but particularly in our country, a significant reduction in church attendance since that time, and that it continues to be there echoing in our minds. What are we to do about this? People are neglecting. Even here, it says it was the habit of some. I wouldn't say that it was the primary spearhead of the reason for our session to pick this book of the Bible to preach, but it was something that was very much on my mind as we chose the book of Hebrews, to be a series for us to go through that we needed to get a refresh of who we are as a church so that we can understand if we have more challenges ahead that would challenge our coming together, assembling together, how we would be prepared to deal with that. 
And it is somewhat ironic that on the Sunday that I finally get to this particular passage is that we have some people that are away for us providentially on vacation. This particular passage I'm going to do a two-part sermon on because I, I believe that there are two points in the first part of the paragraph that are very clear. And there are three points of reaction to those proclamations, the first two, that I think pretty much said this is, should be a two-sermon a two passage. It could be a, probably a, a six-month series, <laughs> but there's so much in here. Because it's a summary paragraph, it echoes of Hebrews chapter 4, which again was kind of a summary um, chapter in of itself of, of who we are. And it was a, an overarching umbrella of what the whole book of Hebrews is about. But then here we have really bringing the points together and it starts out with the word therefore. So it's even designed structurally as a paragraph to be bringing things to a head as we see. And all of the sentences have so much that it's pulling from from past paragraphs of the same letter. But here we see that we have two things. And today in this Sunday sermon, I'm going to focus on the haves of what we have. It says twice. We have something. And then it says three times later on in the paragraph to let us. And so it's basically saying since we have these two things that I'm about to talk about, let us respond in these three ways. So that's the way the the two-part sermon is going to be made up of is today I want us to be focusing on what is it that we have, what the writer to the Hebrews is saying that we have, and then next week we're going to talk about what we should be doing in response to that by obeying this call to let us this, let us that, and let us this. So we look here in verse 19. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, So we see that. That's the first part. We have. We have confidence. We have this assurance. We have this trust to enter into the holy place because we have this confidence of the blood of Jesus Christ. But I want to back up there and I want to point out the importance of the word brothers here. That, you know, this is a common language for a lot of the letters. We see it will be... Addressed in a way to brothers. And we could probably historically indicate that there may have been predominantly men there. But when we think about the New Testament and we think about this particular letter and what it meant to be brothers to Jesus Christ, and when we understand that the distinctions of male and female when it comes to our inheritance have been taken away, that this calling to us, therefore brothers, truly is, and has most, most commentators do recognize this, that this is for brothers and sisters in Christ to be considered as brothers to Jesus. And it's important that both our sisters in Christ and our brothers in Christ realize that we have this tremendous elevated position to be considered as brothers. Because in that time, to understand that meant that we have inheritance. Because it was only for brothers to have really truly inheritance in that time and context. But the remarkable component to the gospel and the coming of the New Testament is that the inheritance that we have in Jesus Christ allows all of us who trust in him 
to receive the inheritance that belongs to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So that, therefore, is very potent and powerful in of itself that we have this calling. It's not just a calling of an introduction. It is a calling of position and right that we have with Jesus Christ. So when we see these two halves following that, we should say to ourselves, okay, I'm glad. I'm glad that we have this inheritance. Like I've said in a very recent sermon, most of us, when, if someone called us up and said, you know, you have a, a long lost relative that passed away, you have an inheritance, we would look forward to that. Oh, we have an inheritance. You know, we go, oh, we're sorry about the, the relative, but we would all be glad to hear about the inheritance. But the question is, do you know what your inheritance is? And it says here that one of the things that we have in that inheritance by being the brother to Jesus Christ is that we have a confidence to enter, to enter into the very presence of God, to enter into the very fellowship and presence of holiness because of the blood of Jesus. Do you have this great confidence? Secondly, we have this great priest. Last week I talked a lot about Jesus being the king and how he reigns. Here we're using the same kind of language, but now we're looking at his priestly role over the house of God. Again, this is still this authoritative understanding of his priest-king kind of role over the house of God. We have Jesus as our great priest But it says that it is over the house of God. What it's saying there is do you realize that we have this title once again of being the house of God. I think both of these things are necessary for us to consider before we get to that particular one about assembling together. Because we're going to have to understand why are we assembling together? Why are we called not to neglect the assembly of other believers? And these two particular points are the foundations of why we are called to come together as an assembly, which is the Greek word there is ecclesias. I've messed it up. Ecclesias. Say it for me. Ecclesia. I knew I was going to get off track there, which is what we get the word church. It's what forms us together as the church. This assembly, this gathering is of a church. So why? What defines us and why are we there? Well, let's look at this word confidence. Now, just like with the word conscience, you have these two word ideas coming together. Conscience meant to be, if you remember, with thought, with thinking. And we, we merge them, both the mind and the heart of, of these are the things that, that drive us. That when we think about our conscience, it's what we dwell upon and what, what drives our hearts. Here it's with, with, with fidelity, with trust is what you have there, with confidence. There's a trust. It is the things that we trust in. But the interesting thing about that particular Greek word is that it is also synonymous to boldness. So it's not just a simple trust. It's a very potent trust that there is a boldness. Now, I'll get to this more next Sunday, but when we think about this calling to us to let us stir up one another, that particular verb there for us to stir up one another has a very similar sentiment 
than this word confidence because it's a fiery kind of word that this stir up is also utilized in, in very almost conflicting ways when you're in a conflict or almost in a fight, this very bold, fiery kind of way that we're to stir each other up with this fiery boldness. Well, this confidence word is also has the same kind of sentiment to it, that it has this fiery trust that we are stirred up inside in our boldness to hold on to this truth. And so it's a very powerful word. That we have this, that we have this powerful boldness, this right to boldness, this call to boldness to trust with very great fervor and fire that we can enter into the presence of God. And so I ask, do you have that confidence? Is this something, if you like the idea of having the inheritance of Jesus Christ, are we as a people, and is the evangelical church today, is it driven by this confidence? Is that the heart of the church right now? Is that the heart of the culture and the people, of people who call themselves Christians? Do they have this fiery boldness? Is it the power that drives them? I'm afraid to say that I question that. Because this particular confidence has a presupposition in it That one, that God created all things and that he created all things for a purpose. See, for Christians, we might say, yeah, he created all things. But do we think about that he created all things for a purpose? But then even beyond that, do we think that he is in his greatest character is that he is holy, holy, holy and that we are not. See, this confidence that it's talking about, that this confidence in the blood of Christ is presupposing some things that I think are somewhat in question in our culture today. Do we even dwell upon the fact that he is the creator of all things and that he created all things with a purpose? Do we think about the purposes of God? Do you think that our Christian culture, not talking about just the secular culture, but do you think that the church culture, is it driven by thinking about the purposes of God? Is that what we wake up thinking about? And do we think about his holiness? Is that something that is in our mind? I think in most cases, the evangelical church today in America, we like the very strong sentimentality that he likes to be with unholy people, that he's, he, he comes down onto our level. But do we think about the fact that he is holy, holy, holy? I was pointing out to my children, I was listening to R.C. Sproul, and he, he points out that that's the only attribute of God that's repeated three times like that. That, you know, he is love, he is justice, he is mercy, but you only see in the Bible that it says three times, holy, 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 God is holy. Do we dwell upon that? To have this great confidence in the blood of Jesus requires us to have this presupposing that he is holy and that we are not, because that's the whole very point of that blood of Jesus Christ. That's the whole necessity of it. Do we dwell upon that? The two most astounding and disabling realities is that God desires to be among and to reign with a holy people. And the problem is, the second point is that we are not. That's the amazing thing, that if we think about all of Scripture, we see that that is his primary purpose 
And everything that we see from Genesis to Revelation is that he desires to dwell among his people and to reign and make a holy people. And then we have this very painful reality is that we are not a holy people. And what are we going to do about that? Well, the writer of Hebrews is saying that we have now in the person of Jesus Christ this very bold and powerful and fiery confidence in the blood of Jesus Christ that makes that come together. That makes the purposes of God into the reality of our day. And this should give us boldness. This should give us a trust. And we should be stirred up by this with tremendous confidence. But what is our confidence? What is our primary trust of our existence? What has power over us and draws us? What makes us tick? What identifies us? What, who are we? What, what do we hunger for and thirst for most? I think in most cases, the evangelical church has seemingly innocent desires. I don't think that we want to, you know, you, you think about sometimes in like superhero movies or in, you know, some kind of, um, or just, you know, fictional or science fictional circumstances. Somebody wants to rule the world and have everything for themselves and make everybody their slaves or they're going to take all of the, you know, you think that's just usually what the, the nemesis or the bad guy is. And we're like, well, none of us really want that. We just want to have a nice, quaint little life with all the things that are in it. You know, and that's, in a sense, we can, we can see you know, we're not anything like that. And we like these caricatures of what the, the bad guy really is. And so seemingly our desires are generally innocent. But what are they? Let's break them down a little bit. What's underneath all of that? I've been doing with uh, the children in the past couple of weeks, well, I just did one, but we just to have one this past week, but I'm starting to do this worldview class. It's, being able to be home, I'm able to do teaching now. And in the worldview class, um, we've been talking about the different philosophies that are out there. And uh, this past week, we're supposed to talk about postmodernism. You know, what is postmodernism? Well, it's a philosophy. This is a definition that I got from online. It says it's a, de- it's a philosophy that rejects the concept of rationality, objectivity, and universal truth. Instead, it emphasizes the diversity of the human experience and the multiplicity of perspectives. I know these are some big words, kids, but just follow me along here. In the differences of intellectual stances and the mode of discourse, characterized by a skepticism towards some sort of grand narrative, which was considered to be modernism, that really that we have this naturalistic essence of who we are, that we don't need to be defined by some grand narrative of something that's absolute, that we all have our own individual experiences and we can all pretty much define what truth is, that we all within our own selves can define our own morality and our own purposes for existence. As you can see, as I probably began talking about postmodernism, you probably think, well, I don't really believe in all that. But as we get a little further along in how I'm explaining it, you can kind of see, well, you know, that is kind of how we are. We, we do like that individualistic ability to define for ourselves the things that we really like. We can see how these kind of philosophies can go amok. And um, also in that same class, we've been talking about 
uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. And Chuck Colson describes the impact, if you remember, Friedrich Nietzsche was something that had a tremendous impact on Nazi Germany. And he describes the impact of Friedrich Nietzsche's teachings and philosophies as one that taught that ultimately there was the death of God and therefore the death of morality. That sin was nothing but a, a ruse invented by what he called ascetic priest. And asceticism is about being disciplined in self-denial. He called these people old shamans who had achieved some kind of magical hold over men and women by playing the ravishing music of guilt in their souls. He denounced the Christian morality as a morality for slaves and that the concepts of kindness and forgiveness and humility and obedience and self-denial, that these were all characteristics of weak, repressed slaves who had rejected the joy of life. Now, again, you may look at these philosophies of postmodernism or Friedrich Nietzsche and say, these are not things that I hold to. But Ken, again, Keith, let us, let us ask ourselves, what is our confidence? What do you think one of some of the driving things are for our culture today, particularly amongst Christians? Would you disagree with me if I said, particularly from if you, if, if you were going to take most of Christian people, people who were in the church, and they were going to be telling children and the, the next generation where to put their focuses, would you not say that on the top of that list, this statement is true as their primary focus and confidence of what a good life would be about? To get a college education and a good job that makes you happy and that provides a good retirement so that you will have the liberty and the ability to get the best, the most best things that you need and to have the time to do the things that make you happy. Would that be on the top of the list, you think, for most people in modern Christian evangelicalism? That seems like a fairly generally innocent thing until we think about the fact that it's probably really on the top of the list to position yourself. Maybe it's not so much a college education, but to position yourself in a way that will allow you to find that job that will give you the, the greatest amount of happiness and fulfillment. And so therefore you can set yourself up in a place where you also have a good retirement. And in the meantime, that you'll be able to have the time to do the things that please you. I think it's one of the primary components of what we see our purposes to be. And if you think about that in light of postmodernism and what Friedrich Nietzsche is teaching, it doesn't oppose those philosophies. It allows you to choose for yourself what is going to make you happy. And I would contend that it is actually in contrast in many ways to the very thing that we see portrayed to us in Scripture. It's not that God wants us to be a killjoy, but that we start first with him being the creator. And we start first with his character and his purposes. And then what do we do about that? Here, the writer of the Hebrews is saying that the very spearhead of who we are as a Christian people is that we have the blood of Jesus Christ that allows us to fulfill the great purposes of God. 
in what he desires, in what makes him happy. That is what should make us tick. Not that we have the ability to buy the best products that have the best reviews on Amazon and the best reliability, or to have the best foods that have no GMOs or all free of this and that. See, when we think about what really drives us most of the time, it is our consumeristic identities of what pleases us that really is our confidence, that we have greater confidence the more we can know about what we can do to get the things that please us. And then our whole identity is wrapped up in a brand or a team or a diet or even a sexual preference. It's all about what we prefer. We are even a consumeristic church. We have a smorgasbord of of ways that we can worship God in the way that gives us the blessed pleasure. Ultimately, we can even use Christianity in a way that shaped just the right way gives us the best life. I think that's one reason why Jordan Peterson is so popular is because he recognizes that culture and society cannot sustain itself unless it's somewhat molded and understands and lives out the Judeo-Christian ethic. He knows that, that civilization will fall. But if you see, he's not talking about dwelling with God. He's not talking about a relationship with God. In serving and worshiping him, he's not talking about the blood of Christ. And so when our churches are absent, the focus of the blood of Jesus Christ and the purposes of why that is such a great confidence for the Christian people, we end up having a church that's really a Christless church. Because we don't really need Jesus for what we want, for the philosophies that really cause us to tick. John Piper says, the critical question for our generation, for every generation, is this. Now catch this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, And all the physical pleasures you ever tasted. And no human conflict or any natural disasters. Could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? So, you know, when we read all of those things and we think about all of those things, yeah, I like that. That That's kind of my definition of heaven. That's what I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to not having sickness and having friends that I love and and I'm assuming we're going to eat and we're going to have a good time and it's going to be beautiful and and I'm I'm assuming I'll be physically pleased with that whole conflictless world and no natural disasters like fires going through Maui. Yeah, that's what I would like. But what if Christ wasn't in that? Is Christ at the tip of our desires? Is the blood of Jesus Christ and the presence of going into these holy places with the Father and with the Spirit, is that our great trust that we are being propelled by? But what of the blood of Christ? 
When we sing this hymn, Nothing But the Blood of Jesus, do we realize the impact that that has? That, or are we just using the blood of Jesus so that we can have all these things that John Piper says and really is basically accusing that what we really want are these things, not so much Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, what can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, for my pardon I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, for my cleansing this my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, this is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Do we realize the potency and the power that we have in the inheritance of Jesus Christ, that we get to dwell with Jesus, that we get to dwell with the triune God? And is that what motivates us day to day to live for him? Or can we accept really the things that are really causing this society to tick, which is more postmodernism, and there's a lot more Friedrich Nietzsche going on than the writer of that great hymn. So as we think about that, and as we realize that this is what is necessary for us, that we must pray to God and ask God to make that more of our confidence that as soon as we get started here, we realize, well, maybe my confidence isn't there yet. And we need to be assured with the things that truly are trustworthy. But for the second point here, it says that we have a great priest over the house of God. This great priest king reigning over us. You know, one of the things that we hear a lot when we talk about the book of Hebrews and we talk about that particular passage about not neglecting to meet together, some of the debate that occurs in today's society, church society, is that, well, the church doesn't really, excuse me, the Bible doesn't really talk about church membership or doesn't really talk about that we have to go to church all the time. We can worship God wherever we are. And and, and it's interesting because I would really argue with them and say, yeah, the Bible also says that we shouldn't set ourselves on fire either. It doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. I've not read it anywhere. It says you should not, thou shalt not set yourself on fire. But we all know (laughs) that we shouldn't set ourselves on fire. It's just a kind of common sense thing. Well, if we think about the great purposes of God, and if we look at what is being highlighted in Hebrews in the supremacy of Jesus Christ, And how this supremacy of Jesus Christ gives us access to come together to dwell with God. And that God desires to dwell amongst a people. And we start seeing throughout the whole New Testament how it established the church. And how the whole New Testament, the bulk of the New Testament is written to particular churches throughout the known world at that time. The obvious component is is that God desires for there to be a church and for his people to be with each other. And it would be crazy for us to even consider that we would not consider ourselves a part of the church. That's this one verse of telling us that we shouldn't neglect to meet together is not just the one lone message for us 
about being together as a church. The whole of the revelation of the gospel is highlighting that we are called to be a church. We, plural, the house of God. That's what's being said here, is that as we consider this blood of Jesus Christ, this access for us to dwell with God, we are also receiving with that the identity of being the house of God. This building is not the house of God. It is a beautiful and wonderful gift of a place for us to come to, that we can be sheltered from the rain and be positioned and postured in a way that allow us to have a worshipful mindset. But this is just a building. It is the people of God who are the house of God. And I want to go over some passages, and we're just going to finish basically my whole second point by highlighting just how potent the calling for us, that we it's, it's crazy for us to even think that God does not desire for us to be together and to worship together and to belong to each other. We don't have to go far. We can just go a few pages back to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. It says that now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to these things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if we indeed hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. It's saying that when we think back to the Old Testament of how Moses was faithful over the people of God, a particular people, the Jews, Israel, that even now, even more, Christ, who truly is the fulfillment of that, and that Moses was just a shadow of, that he is faithful over God's house now as a son, not just as a prophet, and therefore we are his house. If we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting of our hope, which is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Here pretty soon we're going to be celebrating Christmas. And the great thing about Christmas, and we'll read about it in Isaiah, and we'll read about it throughout all the Old Testament passages through Advent, that God is dwelling with his people. Emmanuel, God with us. That's, what we, that's why we celebrate Christmas, is because God is going to be among his people. Not just individuals, but individuals together he is dwelling among us. See, in 1 Corinthians 3.9, right before that particular verse, it says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. God's building, it says. Now, not to say that we're not individually dwellers of God in of itself, but look at the purposes of it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19 through 20, in the context of this is in light of individualistic sexual immorality. It says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? That your bodies, your individual bodies, your individual persons, yes, they are temples of God. So yes, individually, we are temples. But then what does the next verse say? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body, that you are brought with a purpose for Jesus 
And what is Jesus seeking to do with your body, with your individual life? And I think if we look at the other passages, we see that he is building out of us, out of individual members of a greater body of his kingdom. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through 18, using very similar language that we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, but now it's talking about the corporate unequally yoking of people. It says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them. And I will walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And do not touch unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. This is quoting Leviticus chapter 26 when he was talking about Israel. But now we're in 2 Corinthians when he's talking to the church. He's saying that now we, the church, are the temple of the living God. And so as we combine the emphasis of the blood of Christ with the calling of being the the house of God, we see in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18 through 22, it says, For through him, through Jesus, through this blood of Jesus Christ, we have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We shouldn't have to be told to come together as a church. We shouldn't be told that we have to plant churches. We shouldn't have to be told that we should come together and worship. The whole essence of the whole New Testament calling of the gospel is that God is taking people, his people, and knitting them together into a dwelling place for himself. That's the primary emphasis of the purposes of the blood of Jesus Christ. And then we see in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, as Paul is wrapping things up, he says, I come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. The epistles are written, the New Testament is written so that we will know how to respond and behave as the household of God. That's what, at least a good half, if not the bulk of the New Testament is about. It's the, let us then, let us this, let us that. In a sense, if you think about it, this particular paragraph where it says we have this and we have that, it's like the Gospels 
And then the let us, let us, let us is like the epistles. It's like from there on, this is how we are to respond to the reality of the gospel of the blood of Jesus Christ. And it says, great indeed, still in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, if we confess the mystery of godliness. And then there's like this little small confession of faith that seems very similar to our more fleshed out Apostles' Creed, it says, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's probably one of our first confessions of faith as a church. And so this particular chapter, before we can get to the let us's, we have to ask ourselves, do we have this confidence? And if we don't have this confidence, and I would venture to say that all of us, because we are sinners... We don't have enough of this confidence. But it should be the primary spearhead. It should be the centerpiece. It should be the cornerstone of our confidence. And it should be what is stirring us inside so that we can get to that last point in the chapter or in the the paragraph where it says, let us stir up others. If we're not stirred up by the confidence of the blood of Jesus Christ, we're not going to do a very good job stirring up other people. So to close... I close again with the call of the gospel taken out of 1 Peter chapter 2. I'll put all these verses in my worship notes to you later on in the week, by the way. So if you're like, whoa, he's going too fast. But in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, to close, we see, it says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. This is the first call of the gospel in the sense of the first part of the call of the gospel, which is to repent. But for us as a church, we need to put away hating the things that God tells us that we are to delight in. We've got to stop being Christians who say, oh, we don't need to be together in the church. We don't need to come together and worship him. That's malice toward God. That is the things that he calls us to do. He delights in this. For us to proclaim that as our confession is malice and it is deceit and it's straight up hypocrisy because we are saying that we are trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ so that we can dwell with him, but then we don't want to dwell with his people. Which is full of all slander and envy of some other thing other than the things of God, some other philosophy that is not based on truth. And so we see here in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we need to repent of slandering God. But then the next verse it says, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that is, by it that you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted the Lord is good, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, So if we repent and we now believe that we are believing like children, like newborn infants with the faith of a child in that pure spiritual milk of God, the truth of God, that we are coming to him, a living stone that is rejected by everyone else, but in the sight of God is chosen and precious. We are now transforming our wrong thinking into right thinking and we are trusting God. And then the kingdom is manifested in the last portions here. It says, you yourselves, like living stones, 
are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. We do not want to reject this great confidence of Jesus Christ. We want to be built up into this great temple, the dwelling of our Lord, to Zion. That is our goal and our hope. And we are to begin that here in the now by coming together to worship Him and to stir each other up, to encourage each other. And to hold each other accountable into faithfulness because he is faithful. And just as we see here in that Peter passage, it says that there are those who reject this stone. There is an urgency that we have here because we know that Jesus is going to come to complete things. We'll see this again in next week's passage. That there is an urgency because the day is drawing near that we are called to be obedient in the church to each other for the sake of being obedient to Jesus Christ because Jesus is returning. So let us repent. Let us believe. Let us draw near into this kingdom with faith. Together, as brothers and sisters in Christ, let us pray these things and let us do these things. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father,